Coming up on One Decision. In the past, we might have written about Liberia or, or Haiti. When you start talking about the US as a place that looks fragile, the rules of the game globally are changing. Welcome back to One Decision. I'm Michelle Kosinski. As we watch every former Trump administration official now come out with their books and stories on the decisions they watched in disbelief happen around them, we have a story of a highly unusual decision. We're talking to a man named Richard Gowan, whose organization could no longer just watch what was happening leading up to the 2020 election. As strange as it was, as foreign as it felt to them, they came to the conclusion that they needed to act, to ring that bell. But first, let's take a quick peek into the mind of Britain's former spy master and current analyst extraordinaire, Sir Richard Dearlove. Well, howdy, Richard. Let's talk America today. Okay, Michelle. Okay, your take on the State of the Union right now. There's no question that the divisions within the Union are very deep. But, you know, the strength of the United States really was sealed, if you wish, in the American Civil War, the most brutal modern war of the 19th century. You know, American democracy has shown its resilience. Yeah, at least we're not in a civil war. We got that. I lived, you know, for a significant period of my life in France. I mean, street violence in France is part of the French political tradition. And, you know, really ghastly riots, think of the, some of the recent Gilets jaunes um, riots in Paris, happen, I wouldn't say, you know, every month, but they, they happen quite quite often. I mean, my very first night in France, there was this massive street battle right outside the restaurant. Ooh, dinner and a show. My children just couldn't believe it. I mean, this is really violent stuff. Um, actually, more violent than you would have seen in, in, in the Capitol building. I, I think it was shocking because of the sort of violation of the sanctity of American democracy. But it, it, it wasn't a sort of systemic threat to the U.S. system, in my view. And if you could sit down with American leadership and remind them of the dangers of some of those problems within their own borders, what would you say to them? Wow, that's, that's a really tough question. Um, well, I, I, I guess the basic advice has to be that these, the polarization that you find in American politics has to be resolved. But the, the extremists need to be marginalized and isolated. Right. And they don't, as it were, need to be regarded as a key part of any political process. And I admire the US greatly. I mean, I am a fan, if you see what I mean. I, I think that civic life in the States at a local level generally is much stronger than in many European countries. And I admire that enormously. Thanks, Richard. Now let's set the scene. Let's go on a trip to midtown Manhattan, that reliably energetic part of town. We head for a busy side street, a building that blends in perfectly with its gray, stony surroundings. But inside, we find this absolute dimly lit heaven of sleek, minimalist design perfection. This feels like a stylish bunker in the middle of the city, a dramatic buffer between the outside world 
and the deep thought on difficult problems that goes on inside these walls. And way upstairs, we enter the airy but basic, no-nonsense offices of the International Crisis Group. This place is designed for work, for thinking and writing, no frills. And that is how we find its UN director, Richard Gowan. He's the image of the academic in a black turtleneck, white beard, and longish hair. His business, trying to solve the world's crises. Well beyond the white noise and constant taxi jolting of New York, into some of the planet's most troubled, dark, and violent corners. International Crisis Group was founded in 1995, a response to horrible wars in the Balkans, Sudan, Somalia, some of the worst conflicts humanity could produce. So a group of statesmen and diplomats put this group together to warn the world about nasty conflicts brewing, with the goal of preventing them from turning even uglier. The goal of preventing war. We have specialists, many of them in you know, pretty dangerous places around the world, uh, looking at conflicts from Latin America through to East Asia. For the first time in its history, Crisis Group made the decision to sound the alarm, to warn of the looming violence and instability within the United States of America. You know, we didn't say on the 6th of January, uh, something very bad will happen on Capitol Hill. But we did say that we saw conditions in the U.S. very similar to those we saw around violent elections in other countries. There it was, and the group's impressive body of work, sandwiched among reports on crises like Iraq, Myanmar, Lebanon, suddenly appeared one in October, days before the presidential election, analyzing the very real potential for serious politically charged violence in America. It seemed to come out of left field and from right in front of our faces all at the same time. It woke up a, a lot of people within the U.S. system to this, this risk of um, uh, not just sort of the election becoming politically divisive, uh, but um, actually sort of instigating violence. And I guess there's always, I, I'm not, I don't want to say it's a risk, but there's always, you know, groups in the United States who will say, oh, well, that was just a provocative, it, it, it was something done to be provocative and to call out political uh, elements that you might not agree with. Well, we, we work on international crises. We do also work on crises within, within countries. And, you know, we've looked at other countries and other election processes in places such as uh, Ethiopia or Libya and made similar warnings in the past. Mm -hmm. And I think we do take pride in the fact that our research is very much grounded in, you know, factual analysis. And uh, crisis groups' reports still look a little like sort of academic texts, you know, packed with footnotes. We, we really, you know, we really try and test our own assumptions. And I think we felt that in, in saying that there was a risk of election-related violence in the U.S., we were basing that firstly on what we were seeing on the ground in the U.S. last year. Um, and secondly, our expertise in election violence, you know, based on over two decades of working in unstable places around the world. So I, I think that our analysis was objectively sound. And I guess the, the other reason that we look back and say it was objectively sound is that we were tragically proved right by events in Washington.
so take, take us back there. At what point did international crisis groups start seeing this as this is something that we need to look at? So it was the events in Washington in the summer, uh, you know, the famous moment where you had, uh, you know, uniformed personnel on the streets in Washington, uh, Trump, I think, you know, waving his Bible at the crowds. And uh, I remember uh, a colleague, I think, covering Eastern Europe, just sending an email to the organization as a whole or to the senior management team saying, this looks precisely like the sort of crisis that we cover. And then they stepped back. And then prior to the election, I I forget if it was September or October last year, they put out this much more detailed um, sort of piece looking at the risks of violence and, um, you know, what steps might um, you know, might might follow. So I mean, it was it was the sort of initial uh, moment of chaos in Washington that inspired the uh, you know inspired the focus. And when you when you heard this suggestion, did this really turn your head based on the kinds of things that you were used to focusing on? Yes, it, it did, um, and I think. It gave one pause because, you know, we have seen over uh, we've seen over the years sort of moments of chaos in in other countries uh, that Crisis Group hadn't chosen to uh, to write about for one reason or another. I mean, for example, the independence referendum, the uh, unilateral independence referendum in Catalonia, was something which uh, some colleagues had felt at the time we should focus on because it you know, it was a crisis similar to those we had looked at elsewhere, but uh, for whatever reason, we did not. Um, so, yeah, I think everyone understood that simply the fact that Crisis Group would be looking at the US and making the decision to write about that, rather as in the past we might have written about Liberia or, or Haiti, right. would, would create a shock. And there was the risk of looking alarmist. You know, there was the question, well, what if nothing does happen? I mean, you know, what, what, if, what if everything turns out to be uh, just a moment of paranoia? Would, would that make us look a bit silly? <laughs> and, you know, uh, that's not, sadly, that's not a problem we've had to deal with because it turned out that it was, it was worth looking at. Was it controversial within your organization? I mean, at ICG, were people arguing about this? I think there was a healthy debate. I wouldn't say that it was a, uh, you know, it, it wasn't a row, but I think there were certainly discussions of, you know, could we make sure that our methodology was sound? Uh, you know, could could we make sure that we had uh, the necessary facts and understanding of, of what was what was going on? But again, I think you know there were also voices in the organisation sort of saying you can't not do this just because the crisis is in the US. And it, how long had you lived in the US at that point? I I mean I well I've lived in New York since 2005 so um I'm not a, I'm not actually a US citizen but mm-hmm. I mean this this is where I've spent the mo- the majority of my adult life. 
I, of course, was sitting in Brooklyn and because of pandemic conditions, um, <laughs> was confined to a, a fairly small area of Brooklyn, which did not feel like it was on the middle. Um, it was on the verge of uh, collapse, serious political <laughs> violence. And I mean, I had, I had actually been doing a lot of work last year on, on another unexpected issue, which was the risk that COVID could lead to more conflicts globally by undercutting states. So my my focus was away from the US. And I think when I first heard that we were doing it, I, I mean, I guess I looked around myself in, uh, in leafy Brooklyn and thought, <laughs> is this really justified? But then, you know, seeing what happened last summer, seeing the sort of inflammatory tone that a lot of Trump's you know, statements were taking and his supporters were taking, I think the case for doing it became fairly clear. Am I allowed to rip that whistle out of the mouth? I'd rip that. Just... I'd like to punch him in the face, I'll tell you. Yeah, and these ominous kind of warnings that the election results could not be trusted. For an American, any American, that, or right, 50% of American, yeah. that was extremely chilling. It was like, where, where are we? What is this place anymore? And I'm sure inside your organization, many people felt the same way. I mean, I should say we're a uh, we're an organization with branches globally in places like Beirut and Nairobi and so forth. Uh, we're not an overwhelmingly American organization, um, and I think that probably also helped helped us think through whether to write about the U.S. Mm-hmm. because were we an entirely American organization, uh, anything we would have said would have been seen as partisan mm-hmm. one way or another. But the fact that we had colleagues in Europe, colleagues in, in Africa and elsewhere who could you know, look at the arguments we were making and tell us whether they they fit with external perceptions of the situation in the US, but also, as I say, with lessons from election-related violence in other regions, you know, that, I think that sort of gave Crisis Group a stronger sense that we were saying something credible. Yeah. And it was looking eerily similar to these other incidents that you've seen in the past. We did see certain similarities um, with tendencies in weak states around dangerous elections. And so just to give you some examples, you know, the rhetoric of powerful figures, um, the emergence of hate speech, um, hate speech uh, online and so forth is a classic warning sign that something could go wrong. Uh, the existence of armed militias, which many people were not taking very seriously in the US at that time, again, that fits with what you see in a lot of weak states um, before election crises. It's true that this can be a view that can be hard to see from inside America. These warning signs don't seem so much like warning signs when they're right there at home. The the data that we were starting to see around the U.S. uh, did fit with the indicators that we would identify in in other cases as, you know, blinking red when you have an election coming up. And and so it was that it was that sort of recognition that you know this this is all a bit too familiar from our work elsewhere that um, that sort of gave the organisation I think the courage to to push through. Um, it wasn't just a parochial 
you know, ooh, this is not, you know, this is not how we, we like politics to be done in the U.S. feeling. Got it. Were you viewing this as a potential for widespread violence within the U.S., or were you looking out even further and seeing this as potentially internationally destabilizing? We didn't... I mean, I would make two points. Firstly, I mean, we never sort of said the U.S. was going to collapse into civil war. Um, And uh, our analysis was, was measured in terms of, you know, how violence could could escalate because you know we didn't want to seem to be uh, overwarning. There's a um, there's a well-known professional trap in conflict analysis, which is you start to worry about something and then you immediately say that uh, it's going to lead to the worst possible outcome, uh, you know, state collapse. And we didn't we didn't feel that we should make that claim in the U.S. case. We we didn't really get as far as thinking through what uh, violence in the, in the U.S. would mean uh, for great power politics because it would probably have just become highly speculative. Yeah, got it. So in terms of, or when you look at the array of the kinds of decisions your organization mm-hmm. makes, how difficult was this as a decision? Crisis group and crisis group's leadership make a lot of difficult decisions because, like many of the other people you've spoken to on on the podcast, you know we deal with war and peace, and um, we make policy recommendations, even if they're policy recommendations concerning you know less prominent uh, conflicts, that if they are taken seriously but backfire, you know could lead to uh, more violence and more instability. So Crisis Group actually has an extraordinarily rigorous internal policy discussion because we don't want to throw out recommendations that could uh, have unintended but really nasty consequences. Mm-hmm. Well, like, what could that mean? What would a, a recommendation be that would have unforeseen consequences or bad ones? What would that look like? So in the past, we have, you know, we have recommended on on some occasions that uh, countries should actually delay elections. For example, when there seem to be signs that you just can't have free and fair elections, or they could lead lead to violence. Mm-hmm. But clearly, that is a, a risky proposal because there's also a chance that cancelling the election could lead to violence too and you have to make a question of of judgment about whether uh, the risks are higher in in one scenario or or another Uh, now we never suggested cancelling the u.s elections i think that would have um that would have been many bridges too far for us (laughs) i think coming back to your basic question though how hard was this you know i think it was a clearly it was sort of a big institutional decision because crisis group was born in the 1990s in the period of US you know US predominance on the world stage and um, for 25 years we've operated in a world where the US and its allies have uh, tended to uh, set the rules of the international game and intervene in other countries' affairs. And I think that 
we recognized as an institution that when you start talking about the U.S. as a place that looks fragile, uh, the rules of the game globally are changing. And so, you know, it was an important decision for the institution in sort of, you know, recognizing how political instability is is shifting, political instability is growing, and um, countries that 20 years ago seemed eminently stable and immensely powerful suddenly have fragilities of their own. Sure. And was there a backlash when it came out? That there were uh, people criticizing us yeah. on social media, I mean, like anyone who but works. You in, didn't feel like your organization was being attacked, or no? I mean, I think uh, what, I think what struck um, uh, what struck us was actually that the the analysis tapped into uh, themes that people were starting to recognize were very real, but hadn't been able to formulate um, perhaps as clearly as, as we were able to formulate. So I think the the response that our colleagues in DC especially got was um, uh, was respectful and interested. But we were quite used to being on the receiving end of crazy stuff um, <laughs> because we write about sure. controversial things. Do you feel like your report changed anything? Or what was the impact, do you think? It had a very high readership. It was widely circulated. It was one of our sort of two or three most most read reports in 2020. I think it raised awareness. I think that it probably did put um, a lot of political observers in the US sort of on alert to what, what might take place. Clearly, it didn't actually succeed in preventing um, what happened in, in, in Washington in, in January. Um, and I think that you know that that reflects the nature of policy advice more generally in the field of, of peace and conflict that you can inform um, you can put people on alert but sometimes sadly sometimes exactly when you're most perceptive uh, you're least able to um, stop things getting out of control because they're already spinning in a, in a certain direction exactly so when it came out how did you feel about it did you feel like you know, this needs to be exposed. It needs to be called out in the same way that this kind of warning is called out in other places. Did you feel like, you know, we've broken some ground here that needed to be set? Yeah. I mean, I remember um, feeling relieved and gratified that as an institution that we had, we had taken this on. Before you put out any of any report of that type, uh, yeah, on the night before, you're like, oh, you know, are we just overestimating the situation? Are we, are we calling this one? Are we calling this one wrong? The response was massive. You could see that people really wanted to read it. Is there any feedback that you remember that stayed with you? I mean, I remember getting. Um, uh, we got some quite sort of quizzical comments from diplomats around the UN. Uh, people sort of definitely raised their eyebrows that we had uh, we had said this. And I, I think I recall diplomats joking that, you know, maybe we would be arguing that the Security Council should intervene in, in, in the US next. I know from having spoken to my colleagues who'd worked on this in DC that they got a lot of um, uh, 
you know, a, a lot of private feedback. People really sort of uh, seized with what the report was saying. What's interesting is that we actually got a very positive response um, after the events uh, from people in the countries we normally write about. Um, uh, people in Africa and the Middle East said, you know, we'd always thought the International Crisis Group, which is headquartered in Brussels, was a Western organization that wouldn't look at politics in the rich world and sort of say there was a risk of violence. And actually, the fact that you you did that, the fact that you were willing to call out the US, um, sort of make also makes them feel that maybe our coverage of, of politics in Africa and so on is is more impartial and fairer. There were accusations the election would be rigged, fury and distrust across social media, partisan news organizations cranking it out. All in the gray, late autumn chill of pandemic sickness, isolation, and division. And America slogging angrily towards the polls. So you see the election happen. Yeah. You hear the statements that are coming right after it. Do you feel leading up to January 6th, the tension building? Are, are you thinking, my God, you know, our report was right. This is going to happen. Um, I think we could see or I could see tracking events that a lot of the conflict factors which the report had emphasized were were present and were uh, getting more intense. Does that mean that on the morning of the 6th of January, I was convinced we were going to see see that level of violence? Um, I'm afraid I probably didn't. I think uh, my own personal sense was at that moment that maybe the moment of, of highest threat had passed. I mean, actually, I recall on the afternoon of the 6th, I thought, nothing much seems to be going on. There's a protest in Washington. I'm going to pop out to the bank. And then when I came back from the bank, um, suddenly the, the center of the free world was, um, uh, was under siege. I mean, I think I think looking at it, we definitely felt that the analysis was being sort of borne out by events, and uh, and you know the risks were there. But well, again, the nature well the na- done. <laughs> but the, na- the nature of the nature <laughs> well called well called. But the nature of any of you know the nature of political crises is that sort of there are moments when just as we've sort of seen with Afghanistan in the last couple of weeks, suddenly sort of history speeds up and you hit an inflection point. And uh, even if you've done the thinking in advance, you can still be taken by surprise. 
On January 6th, the world stood stunned, watching the heart of Washington, the Capitol, that great symbol of Western democracy, breached, government officials in some cases egging it on, lives stolen from people who were trying to stop it. God, I get upset again just remembering this. It must have made your team feel like we really did the right thing. Even if it was controversial in some ways, it was right to call this out in the United States. Yes, I I mean, no one felt satisfaction with what had happened, uh, not even grim satisfaction. There was no... There was no sense of told you so, but I think there was sort of a a clear-eyed sense that the analysis had been had been proved uh, proved correct, and so that you know I'm grasping for the right word because a moment like that doesn't give you satisfaction. Yeah, it's very Um, tricky, very tricky. But it. Uh, you know, I, th- I think I think everyone did feel that it unquestionably validated the decision to have done that work and made made those calls that this was something we should be warning about. Is the United States still on your watch list? I think now you'll find that there are actually a lot of other organisations who have picked up on. Uh, you know, have picked up on what has hap- have ha- have happened, and are sort of tracking outbreaks of outbreaks of violence. Um, it isn't such a controversial thing to say now that this is something which could could happen again. Yeah. Um, but uh, you know, we've done it once, and if necessary, we'll do it again. Has this changed your view of how stable the U.S. is? I may still be too influenced by um, seeing U.S. politics from the vantage point of New York City, but um, I mean, I think you know, the U.S. also has uh, you know, some fundamental resilience um, that is not there in tragically sort of some weaker states and. Uh, you know, I hope that resilience will prevail. Um, however, I think that everyone who watched the events of 2020 and of January this year is now conscious that political violence is uh, a very present threat here. You have the risk in America of political violence. You have a lot of weapons, first of all. You have the risk of political violence and the risk of racial violence. And in some ways, they are connected. But what do you think is the biggest risk, the bigger risk to America? I think, ultimately, the fact that quite a lot of our political leaders uh, do not seem to have been shocked enough by what happened in January is very worrying to me. And the fact that uh, you have efforts to rewrite history, to minimize what happened in in January, strikes me as a very significant failure to learn the lessons of this 
outburst of political violence. I think if we if we aren't serious about understanding where that violence came from, if we simply reduce it to being uh, like one man in a funny hat um, running around Congress, then we uh, we're making a pretty profound mistake because it revealed some divisions and it revealed some real problems in the way the country's political leadership handle the threat of violence that could come back to haunt us. So what do you think you've learned from that decision? Uh, I felt very proud to be part of an organization that wasn't afraid to be asking hard questions about where US politics was going. I sometimes feel that political analysts, uh, you know, sidestep these difficult questions if they worry that it might affect their access to decision makers in future and so forth. And we didn't do that on this occasion. And I think that was the right thing to do. Well, thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. Well done. Let's bring in Richard Dearlove again. The threat of political violence in the U.S., like we saw January 6th, where do you think we stand on that today? How much does it worry you? Yeah, the trouble is, I you know, I think that's part of your political and social character in the States. Um, I mean, the, the whole concept of <laughs> ownership of weapons. I mean, they're all... Uh, all them, you mean all them guns is what you're saying. Guns. Yeah, it's so fundamentally ingrained in your DNA that it's going to be there forever. You've got to learn to live with it, to control it. You know, the, the other aspect of American society, you know, is this you know, fundamentalist approach to belief and religion. So you get these extraordinary communities who are, you know, almost impervious to outside influence and have an impact and an influence on aspects of the political process as well. What do you think about International Crisis Group's decision? I remember when their report came out. It felt ominous. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I, I, I'm pretty surprised that the ICG took that particular line. And if I had been on the managing board of ICG and this proposal had been put forward, I would have strongly opposed it. Really? Even though the violence actually did happen? You know, the two things that you cannot contest about the United States, you know, is the democratic process and the rule of law. Okay, it gets distorted and uh, yeah. misdirected at yeah. times and some weird things happen. But there is a fundamental difference between the way they function. And then if you're looking at countries like Myanmar, you know, if you're looking at Rwanda, they just don't have that institutional strength and stability. Were they going out on a limb? Do you see it as a, at all as a brave decision? I mean, the, the comparison I would make is with France. French politics are far more volatile and worrying. Hmm. The social divides in France are profound. Um, you know, are they applying that template to France? I bet they're not. Um, it's just, it, it's very fashionable during Trump, post-Trump, to um, sort of victimize the United States as going politically into a dead end. Uh, and I do not subscribe to that viewpoint. America showed it was bigger than the Trump experience. 
And, you know, I think what's worrying now is, you know, he's there in the background, what's the Republican Party going to do? Is Trump going to dominate it? Is he going to be the next presidential candidate? You, you, you never know. It reminds us, too, of the value of organizations like this. These are not pundits on TV ranting about opinions, trying to make the biggest noise and get the most shocked reactions. These are experts on conflict doing the deep research. They, they have a well of actual knowledge. Yeah. Well, I personally am not particularly surprised by what happened. I was involved in a conference in New York way back now. And we had to choose a topic to discuss. And I chose the topic populism. Hmm. And a lot of the people looked at me and said, well, Richard, what the hell is populism? What's it got to do with the United States? I said, well, I think this is a coming influence in our politics and we need to take it very seriously. And uh, I'm quite proud of myself for having, because this was <laughs> four or five years before Trump even got elected or, you know, appeared on the political scene. And, uh, and I had a strong feeling in my bones that where traditional parties were beginning to have great electoral difficulties, it seemed to me the perfect circumstances for this surge of populism to come through. You get extra points for that, Richard. And in terms of the potential for violence, you know, for decades, people and police would warn the criminals have all the weapons and more people arm themselves then. And now these hyper right wing groups and militias, they have all the guns. Those people are armed to the teeth. It's really scary. I mean, we, yeah, this, I think this is a phenomenon of American society, which I find the most disconcerting. Um, but, you know, Statistically, is it large enough to, to be, but is it, is it a systemic threat? Hmm. Yeah, that is that is a question. That, that's a good point. I think what, what bothers me in the, in, in the U.S. is there's so much hate now in politics. There is outright hatred of the opposite political party. You know, in, in the past, it was. It wasn't possible for extremists to find like-minded people so quickly, so easily. They were isolated. They were in yeah. small pockets. They were not interconnected. They were not able to coordinate. Right. When you look at these kinds of simmering, volatile tensions politically around elections in the West, I was going to say, what other country do you think is most at risk for things blowing up? The French presidential election. And if these two right-wing candidates combine, if Marine Le Pen and this guy Zemmour combine together into a single and they, they have some agreement, I, I think they'll defeat Macron. And I think that they will win the French presidential election. And that, that will upend European politics in quite a fundamental way. I mean, it, it will be a Trump-like event. There's no question. Well, we talked to two Richards today, but I'm very happy we have both. Thanks, Richard, number two. You know, you're always number one to us. Oh, I could be shy you say that. Thank you. And thank you for joining us here at One Decision. Follow us wherever you find your podcasts and on social media. We'd love to hear from you. I'm Michelle Kosinski here at One Decision. One Decision.